You've tuned in to DSC's SUP, your podcast update on what's happening in the NDIS, giving you the lowdown on the what, where and how on current developments by cutting through the noise to make the complex a little simpler. Welcome to our second What's Up in the NDIS, our update. And this update is going to focus on Specialist Disability Accommodation, SDA, for the rest of the podcast. And we've got Brent Woolgar, who is DSC Subject Matter Specialist on SDA and has been for a long time. Hi, Brent. Hello. Welcome. And Rebecca Brissett, who's our Subject Matter Specialist on Supported Independent Living, Home and Living in general, the more the support side of the SDA, but both of them have a lot of overlap in their subject matter specialities, and they both work a lot together. So there's a lot going on between the housing and support. So Brent will dominate the episode with um, uh, support from Rebecca. So we're talking about the bricks and mortar bit of home and living in the NDIS. And Brent, I'm going to surprise you with a question that we haven't talked about. But one thing about the SDA is it's always been very different to the rest of the NDIS. It's not the same people that come to a conference. It's not the same old providers, not have to be old providers, but it's, it's, it's a different crew. What, what's different about SDA that it's attracted a different bunch of um, people to it? Well, I think SDA, if you go back to the original design of the scheme and the SDA component, it was always intended to be delivered by institutional investment uh, with the promise or hope of a better than market return. And if you go back to some of those really original documents, the decision paper on STA pricing and payments, it talks about institutional investment. And to some extent, it has attracted uh, some form of institutional investment, but we're probably seeing the market dominated at this stage with what I'd refer to as sort of second tier capital. So not the, the large institutional sophisticated capital it's more private equity um, family offices some of the commercial banks although they still sort of really haven't engaged with the sector to any great extent so it's a real mismatch of of people but probably the common thread amongst the people that have engaged with the SDA market is that they have some form of previous knowledge in property investment how interesting. And, and when you say institutional investment, it was designed for a different tier. We're talking about banks and... Yeah, banks, super funds, you know, the, the really large institutional investors that have got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to play with. And if if one thing has re emerged really strongly from the SDA market over the last eight years or so is that it's not a a market where you can deploy hundreds of millions of dollars Quickly. Quickly. I was involved in the early days of the National Rental Affordability Scheme, NRAS, and the same thing happened, Brent. I, you and I have not talked about this, but it was meant to get all the big funds involved and it had a lot of trouble getting anybody interested. And by the time the coalition government were um, putting the knife to it and, and getting rid of it, the institutional investment was just starting to creep in. So are we starting, is that what you're saying? We're starting to see some institutional interest start to pick up in it or still not quite yet? No, I don't. I don't think so. Just quite yet, where a lot of the big players have have looked at SDA. Um, some have invested quite considerable time and I assume money into exploring the market and seeing whether it's right for them 
and I, I personally think that a lot of the people that, that looked at the SDA market assumed that the SDA market was a property proposition. So the same macroeconomic variables that apply to the Australian housing market would apply to the SDA market and nothing can be further from the truth. It is the property part of SDA is the easiest part of the entire process. So unpack that a little, Brent, um, and you're not losing me yet, so I'm understanding where you're going. Yeah, so it's, if you look at, you know, the general housing market in Australia, the, the macroeconomic influences, housing affordability, supply, demand, uh, the cost of debt to actually, you know, get the mortgage and and buy the Australian dream, all, all of those factors work together to determine how the property market performs. So I just interrupt. So people borrowing money, people building stuff and people buying houses is what you're talking about. And that, that sort of stuff sort of works in a big picture. Yeah. That's the, the essence of the property market. There's supply and supplies, either new houses being built or people selling houses. And we've seen the federal government recently try to convince empty nesters to, to sell down their larger properties and, and move into smaller properties. Yep. Um, with the SDA market, it, all of those factors in terms of obviously supply and demand, they're important to some extent, but a lot of the, the same macroeconomic influences just aren't the same in SDA. And a lot of the people that I've seen over the years don't fully appreciate that. And that's where you see a lot of these institutional investors have a look, try to apply normal property market economics to it and get frustrated and leave. So that you're saying that's unpack it, make it simple for us quickly, please. So if you imagine in the open property market, you've got a person, they've got an employment, there's access to debt at a certain rate, there's supply of properties in a certain area. So they make a choice based on affordability um, to some extent, mm -hmm. uh, amenity you know, buy in a location that, that is both affordable and offers some form of amenity. In SDA, in a lot of sense, from the consumer's perspective, a lot of the affordability question is, is taken out of the equation. So if you see a SDA developer building a home in, you know, the, what I refer to as the urban sprawl, so the new suburbs, the new greenfield land developments taking place, you know, half an hour, an hour away from centralized amenities. They're doing that on the assumption that it's an open market property play. There's no consideration of amenity, no consideration of the end user of the property. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, that's bizarre. Hmm. So the, the big cock up in NRAS was that the, they got the levers slightly wrong and a whole lot of developers came in and built really small shit, really tiny apartments for students because they could make money out of renting them in the way NRAS was subsidised and it was ultimately not the stock we wanted. Are we seeing some of the levers being got wrong in SDA? Are we building some, it's a Dorothy Dixer, but go for it, Brent. Yeah, look, the, the types of properties that are being delivered and have been consistently delivered, certainly over the last two to three years. Um, and you know, there's been some significant influence from 
property affordability, the price of land, the, the access to, to land and cost of construction obviously is spiraled out of control largely as well. And now yeah. on top of that, we've got interest rates starting to creep up also. So with the SDA price framework, what we have seen occur is a lot of small apartments in centralized locations, Melbourne, Sydney in particular, Brisbane. Here we, here we go again. Or properties built in the urban sprawl. Uh, so uh, properties that have no connection to community are, are built in brand new communities that don't have amenity, public transport, health, allied health, um, connection to some pretty basic things just like shopping and, and those types of services that we all like to access, you know, relatively regularly. So, so developers are doing what they've always known how to do. They're, they're building um, small apartments in the city or large urban sprawl shit and neither of those are necessarily appropriate for the NDIS population who've got to live in it. Exactly right. Um, you know, the there is a lot of evidence that there is quite significant vacancy rates in a lot of the the smaller yeah. inner city apartments and that that's being influenced both by a person's choice about how they want to live but also there's now significant influence uh, from the support funding side so a person may very well achieve sda eligibility to live in a inner city apartment if that's what they would prefer to do but they're not receiving the support funding necessarily to achieve that so there's multiple levers being operated from the NDIS side of things as well, which... Which aren't working. <clears throat> well, they're, they're not working. And it's certainly something that a lot of the, the finance that's pouring into the STA market just don't fully appreciate that this is not a property play. Now, this would be hilarious, Brent, if it wasn't so um, absolutely tragic in affecting people's housing outcomes, because it's utterly predictable that the Commonwealth government would stuff up um, spending money on housing because they, they do it more often than they, they do it all the time. And, but I know that there's a, you've talked about the disconnect between what the National Disability Insurance Agency, the agency involved in doing this, they're just not listening. Are, you know, is anybody listening? We've been saying this for a couple of years, you're building the wrong pipeline and the developers are still rushing in to build the wrong pipeline. The government's still giving the wrong messages about the, the pipeline or the wrong levers. Am I being simplistic? No, no, you're not. There, there is, uh, it's a difficult sort of question to, to nail down a solution to, but, you know, uh, we've seen over the years, huge increases in the quality and, and the granularity of the data that the NDIS is providing around the SDA market. And to some extent, that is incredibly useful, but it's also incredibly dangerous unless you really understand what that data is telling you. And again, a lot of organizations look at that data from a property development, property investment perspective. And it's just, you just can't do that. You have to look at it through the lens of, obviously there, there is the property economics that need to be considered, but there's the person, their support budget, the access to supports, the support environment, all of those things need to be considered to get a successful outcome. And that's probably the area where it's falling down the most and has been ever since day one. 
you know, you look at the property pipeline or what the agency refer to as unfinished SDA projects. And in the recent quarterly report, we have 503 dwellings across Australia noted as being unfinished at this point in time. And when you sort of delve into that information, 60% of those properties are high physical support. A lot of them um, will be in locations that are already oversupplied. So Brent, I'm um, imagine me, I've just got a job in a super fund or a big bank, one of the institutional investors, fairly new, you know, done, done my um, studies, and I'm taking notes on this podcast. And at this stage, and my notes are saying, holy shit, tell the boss to get out of this space. I, I don't necessarily think it's a case of getting out. It's a case of spend the time to really understand the dynamics yeah, of the market yeah, and see yeah. if that equates to the investment goals of the fund or whoever it is that, that is interested in investing in the market. Because as I said earlier, if, if a fund has a goal of deploying hundreds of millions of dollars of capital annually, and you know, I've, I've seen it multiple times where people say, you know, over the next five years, we want 500 to a thousand SDA properties. <laughs> yep, yep, it's hilarious, isn't it? Yeah. It's look, I won't say it's impossible, but I'm, I'm yet to see anything close to that. Yep. So what's it going to take to get the market functioning in a way that actually meets people's needs and goes back to our original goal? Is it, is it as, as plain as it should never have been a, a market like this anyway? Well, I, I think some of the signalling and, and market stewardship from the agency has been pretty poor. Um, there is definitely an opportunity to make a lot more specific, direct uh, statements around where the SDA market is today and what types of SDA stock will be most desirable in the future. And, and you know, this is where there's always been the tension point in SDA between the principle of choice and control versus what a person will actually be funded to achieve. So you've always had this tension point of a person, choice and control might be that I wanna live alone in a two bedroom apartment in a great location. I need the second bedroom for a family member that visits or equipment, whatever the case might be, um, versus what the agency will determine is appropriate for that person. And, and as we all know, it's there's a, a long history of people not achieving the eligibility outcome that they wanted. I, I think, and certainly the data would suggest, we'll start to see a bit of an ease up in terms of the eligibility outcomes. And I think more people will start to achieve the eligibility that they really want how the NDIS will then control that will be through the support funding allocation. So sure, you can have your $130,000 a year to live alone in your two bedroom apartment, but you, you'll only have $50,000 for support funding, which effectively for a lot of people that will render it not possible. So this thing is complex and that's what you're saying, Brent, and I keep pushing you to try to make it simple. But what, what I'm hearing from you is that a lot of the wrong stock is getting built, principally partly because the people building the stock don't get the dynamics of the scheme and have not done enough work, you know, seek first to understand. It's a wonderful old saying, you know, to really understand what this market is all about. And now you're touching on the mismatch between if you build one of these joints, you've got to have people in it um, to pay for it. And if you don't have people in it, 
it doesn't get paid for. And the way you get people in it is to get support funding for them. So, Rebecca, I'm going to pull you in now and ask you to please tell us. It used to be the house was the thing that got funded, but now it's the people's in it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, and uh, in the support side of things, we're seeing that really cause a lot of disruption. Um, and and what is interesting for me is uh, even quite a few times this week, I've had discussions about uh, viability models in relation to supports in the home and, you know, what is the vacancy rate that we can afford and, you know, we'll aim for 80% or 90% guided by data given within the sector. And for me, you know, it's looking at it completely wrong. Our aim is to very much have people with a disability have the ability to move around and experience life in the way they should. And if all we're doing is looking at a house and trying to fill it and making sure that we're viable, then that's not going to achieve that. So we want to be able to get providers to say, okay, our challenge here is not how do we fill this house? Our challenge is how do we create a model that sustains us itself on less funding? And then we'll get a lot more innovation. We'll get a lot more bespoke options between SIL and ILO and all of those type of things. And, and, and we'll see these models actually start to be possible, which will then make SDA a little bit more attractive to investors. So help me out, um, Rebecca, because didn't you just say, Brent's saying this shit's hard to do, it's really hard to make money in, and you just said, and we need to work out ways of making less money. <laughs> no, actually, I think that the people that are operating from a fear-based approach, I've got this property, I've got these support costs, these rosters that I need to sustain, um, they're going to see it as making less money. If they can be the differentiator that comes in and creates a model that can sustain itself with shared funding in less traditional ways, I imagine people will be flocking to their doorstep yeah. for that quality support and will fill their vacancies and they'll have waiting lists. Yep, solve your vacancy problem. Yeah. We're, we're applying old methods to new problems and it's not working. So this is a question, I'll get you to lead it, Rebecca, but I want Brent to come in if he's got more to add after you speak. But what is being successful out there? Because at this stage, if I'm taking notes for the, the big institutional investor, I've actually stopped taking notes and I'm looking at Seek for another job because this is not going to work out. Um, <laughs> what is the most successful? Um, I think it's... Uh... Uh, like Brent said, looking at the people who want to live in these environments and, you know, we've got to do a lot of work in helping them to understand that the way they receive supports is going to be very different. Uh, if they go in saying, I've got one to two funding and I want to live in a one bedroom apartment, uh, at, but I want all my support provided by a support worker. It's not going to work and I can only afford what I've been funded for. So if I look at my support differently and say, actually, I'm happy to use a little bit of technology and some equipment and support that doesn't look like someone staring at me for 24-7 a day in case I need them, then I actually might be able to afford that uh, what I'm what I want so choice and control needs to be led by the ability to take responsibility to think bigger and then find providers that will meet you in that creativity space and go you know what we can make this work for you and aim at a lower break-even point and then say you know what majority of us are not for profit so if we can actually get 90% vacancy that's awesome. How can we reinvest in more creativity? So I think uh, there's absolutely models that can work. ILO's brought in a whole heap of 
innovation to the East, but we need families and participants to step up and go, okay, we need to do this differently now, which will be harder for some of those legacy people that said, you told me I was done. You told me I was safe and I was going to be protected, but we need one more push to get people safe and protected in the new model. Correct me if I get any of the precepts wrong on the question I'm about to ask you, Rebecca, but I know your background and I know you come from an organisation that supported um, significant numbers of people with an intellectual disability in in housing. And my understanding is that the NDIS, the, the vast majority of people that are going to get support for housing are going to have intellectual disability. And I think part of the mismatch that Brent and I talked about in the build is a lot of the publicity, a lot of the people promoting SDA in the sector have promoted this image of an ambulant person with no cognitive issues in a in a wheelchair. And yes, they're yeah. out there, but they're not the vast majority, which is people with an ID. So yeah. that's why partly why they're building stock is the players in the sector are saying build this shit and it's the wrong shit. But coming back to people with intellectual disability, does that fit your um your suggestions for going forward, do they fit people with an ID? Can we be more innovative? Can we do things differently? Of course we can. Uh, there's been so many times where we have had people we're supporting 10, 15 years ago and we're like, oh, they could never possibly do that. And then all of a sudden something shifts in their life and they're living independently yeah, because yeah. that's where life took them. And it's like, okay, maybe I was being a little protective and maybe our risk appetite or the governing body wasn't willing to let it, us push there. So I think, you know, there's that dignity of risk versus duty of care. And, you know, we use duty of care to feel safe because reality is on the ground you're holding the bag for if something goes wrong and that's a big thing if, if you want to sleep at night I don't want to put someone in a vulnerable position that makes it so that they can't you know that, that they get hurt but reality is we now have resources that were never available to us before we have allied health specialists that can be talking about equipment and technology we talk in our workshops now about the fact i used to spend the majority of my time laminating pieces of paper to help people communicate yeah yep yep we don't need to do that anymore um, so people with intellectual disability we need to not look at them as universal capacity Sure, we can bring back supports in this particular two-hour period where they're not needing it and not say they are universal high support. Uh, they're not. They've got, a, they're, it's more grey than that. So if they can move that support from a time when they don't need it to a time where they really do and really look at their capacity in that dynamic way, we can save money in their support factors. Not if we're being led by our roster, but I'm really heartened by the organisations I'm working with that are going, you're right, this is exciting, we can do this differently. So Brent, before you basically said, and we've seen them a number of times, the organisations coming in and saying, we're going to build a thousand of these and we're going to build 5,000 of these in 10 years is not the right approach. And you can very much hear that in all of this conversation. You can't go scale at the beginning of this process. Can you get to scale? Look, I, I don't think you can get to the scale that a lot of the, again, the, the sophisticated investors would expect from the typical property market. And that, that's where these numbers mm -hmm. are coming from. So again, they're, they're yeah, trying to yeah. apply, you know, the open market property economics to something that is, that is not a property play. Property is just such a small part of the overall SDA NDIS housing outcome for an individual yeah. um you know and i still see the vast majority of of sda 
investors and developers and providers to some extent, the first thing that they want to do to enter the market is form a relationship with a support provider. Now, in some cases, that could be a very smart decision because you choose a support provider that's listened to Rebecca, for example, and they're in that innovative mindset. They're in a mindset where each person's an individual. They're going to have different funding. My ability as a provider to influence that funding is pretty much gone now. So I'm going to have to accept that funding. I'm going to have to be able to build a model around that person that provides them with a safe environment, but also allows them to achieve capacity and, and outcomes. Most providers um, are still in the mindset that I need $200,000 minimum to feed my service model in this property. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. this person doesn't have it. So therefore the world is coming to an end. I can't find any people to fill my vacancies because they don't have enough funding to feed my service model, which is just, again, as Rebecca has just explained, it's it's fundamentally the wrong way of thinking with the way the NDIS is heading with individualized funding. So, so Rebecca and providers. So we're saying that some of the, it's harder for some of the older providers that have always run um, stuff in a particular way. It's always hard when you've got your neural pathways and your processes and your systems set up to do things in particular ways. It's hard for them to suddenly individualize and it's not easy financially because their systems are not set up in that particular way. My experience to date with a lot of the new providers coming into the system is that they don't want to do programs. They just want to do personal care, attendant care. They haven't really thought through or understand our, our sector well enough to understand the programmed SIL level or yeah, supported housing level element of what what we're doing. Do you have comment on that? I I do. <laughs> um, I I think we do get a lot of people coming in doing that, and within six months they're calling us up, going, "Oh, this is a lot more complex than I thought it was." <laughs> uh, I think it's really hard to see from the outside how difficult it is to run, you know, a, a provider that provides multiple services or that has that complexity. But within those providers, there's so much experience and knowledge that can shift this scheme exactly where it needs to go. Uh, and yeah, it's hard for their, their pathways to get there. But, you know, the last two years, I would say there was a resist resistance. I don't see that anymore. I see a whole heap of providers going, let's do this. Let's, let's get on board, but show me how. I don't know how. And, and really taking that advice when it's given in a way that unlocks rather than just defines. Uh, so I think that we will get new people in and very quickly they'll realise what it is we all realised working at the front line for so long that it it's not just, you know, I'm going to come in and care for someone and, and then be able to go home and go about my day. It's a lot more complex than that. This is great. I, we, let's finish up with um, thinking about providers and Brent, if you could walk us through, there's a new home and living policy coming, which is the over, the overarching umbrella, which will sit over all of the bricks and mortar and all of the support stuff, um, SDA, SIL, um, independent living options. Was that right, ILO? Individual living options. I got it wrong, didn't yeah. I? Yeah, I knew I'd get it wrong, but that's okay. And so Brent, give us a big picture of what's happening in that space and how could providers play in that space? And Rebecca, feel free to jump in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, look, um, there is a lot of stuff happening in the SDA space sort of at the policy NDIS level at the moment. We, we're partway on the the five yearly SDA price review, and 
I've been really encouraged so far with the types of consultation questions that the agency is seeking feedback on. And just last week, for the very first time, they have released a worked example of actually calculating an SDA price. So we finally have visibility of all the variables, all the formulas, all of the weightings, et cetera, to be able to see how an SDA price is derived. And if you look at those models and you apply some of the current property market factors, so cost of capital, average land values, construction costs, those types of, of factors, and you apply those to the model, it, it would show significant uplift in a lot of the SDA prices. And that's been one of the real problems in recent past, certainly the last two years, where land values and construction costs have just spiraled out of control. I mean, it was unprecedented that just the increases that occurred, which yeah, means yeah. a lot of SDA types, models, um, houses, townhouses, those types of things in pretty much every location in Australia are coming back to a pretty much the same return as the open market, which is why, you know, from an investor's perspective, do I do this really complex thing that's going to take me three years to, to start generating a cash flow or do I just build a normal property and make the same return that I could? And, and that's definitely what we've been seeing. I'm really encouraged that the SDA price review is happening at, the, at this time and um, being optimistic of, of a really good outcome there that will reinvigorate the market. We've also got, as you mentioned, the home and living policy. Um, I think it's imminent in terms of when it's going to be released. All the consultation, all of the testing groups, all of that stuff is now complete. And that home and living policy um, is, is a really big milestone in the NDIS's history to date because it'll be the first time we have a policy. And I think it's going to outline a new approach to a, a participant's funding journey how that process will occur, uh, what the interaction with the sector will be, which is very limited until the person actually has their funding determined. And really interestingly, and importantly for SDA investors, a person's support funding is the first thing that's determined, and then they'll look at the SDA question. Whereas in the past, it would be, right, this person who's eligible for this type of SDA, what sort of support funding do they need to be able to live in that type of SDA? Whereas now they've reversed that dynamic, which is that's going to have a big influence on the future of what type of SDA is going to be successful. I um, I was a little bit triggered by something you said, so I'm just going to put it out there. You know, it's do I build homes for people with disability or do I build homes for other people? It's like, why can't they be the same thing? Why can't we just have homes that people with disability can live in? Why do they have to be so different? So I want to throw out the same challenge to property developers to say, stop trying to fit one or the other in there and trying to make it work that if a person with disability doesn't have SDA funding, can't move into your home, then someone else could because homes aren't different. What we want from them isn't different. We're all using automated automation these days. So why can't we, we find that space where our viability isn't reliant on the type of person that's going to live in it? Uh, and in relation to the home and living policy, I think, you know, we're, we're in a space where we do need to start to understand what is our endpoint, what are we trying to achieve here and work towards that. Uh, but one of the things that we're doing a lot of talking with providers with at the moment is 
we have new people coming into the scheme or the more innovative people that are up for the challenge. And then we have a very large cohort, like you were talking about, Roland, of people who probably don't want that much change, who it's harder to understand why technology is going to come in and do that. And I think that's okay, but we need to find a way for the scheme to um, move with the times for the people who want to, but also find a way to respect the people who, and honour the people who probably don't want this level of innovation, bring them in to the contemporary so that it will absolutely work for them. We don't want them to resist it, but don't, don't push them too far in a way that they don't want to go because that will break the scheme as well. Uh, and we need to find a way to balance both of those things. Let's just finish my briefing note um, for the boss, the institutional um, fictional character I was doing. So help me out if you can here. So the key bullet points, I'm going to give her 10 bullet points. And the first one is we need to do a lot more research. We need to understand how the scheme differs from our previous housing plays, why it's not just a straight housing play. We really need to do some serious market segmentation of the population of people who need it. We need to get in and dig dig through that data and see who it is and what they need. We need to really understand the funding policy and its changing, shifting nature of the funding policy from the agency and how we can be flexible within that. Whatever we do, it's not going to start at scale. It may get to scale. It could be tricky. But what it's going to be is highly individualized, lots of pilots, lots of experimentation, but a significant partnership with people, with an organization that knows their stuff. There's a new review coming in and in just a short while, it's gonna change things again. Let's keep an eye out on that. Brent and Rebecca, can you add anything else to the briefing? Well, I think you've got it pretty much spot on. Um, possibly the one thing I would add or, or be a little bit more firm about is that rather than us try to form relationships with service providers, let's try the model where we're actually directly engaging with the future people that are going to be living in our homes. Um, to date, very few providers have taken that approach, but the ones that have are successful. And it means yeah. that they're not being bound to a particular provider's thoughts, attitudes, history, whatever it might be in, in terms of how um, we're going to provide the support in those properties. So, and that to, to my mind was the original intent. Um, but again, you've got a situation where you bring people in from outside the sector whose previous experience has been open market property and they have no concept of, of engagement with the disability sector. And that's why they've tried to take the relatively easy path and let's do, let's partner up with a provider and they can do all that stuff and we'll just build the houses and it's just that's risky i would add uh whatever you do uh start with trying to envision the endpoint. you know what do we want for people with disability in this particular space and use that as your guide to how you structure what you're trying to achieve rather than how do we make today work for us and then wait for the agency to make a next change and then make that day work for us because uh, we need to get people much more proactive and then we can be shaping the scheme and the agency will be keeping up. Right now we're waiting to be told what to do and I think that that's problematic. So think big and then check with the rules that it's okay. Just before we go, guys, I just I was, I was reflecting when I was thinking about 
recording this podcast and I, I looked back, you know, even just three or four years ago, pre-COVID, we used to run big in-person conferences, um, hundreds of people, and we'd, we'd have all sorts of graphs and data yeah, and yeah, information yeah. about designs and town planning and, and um, building classifications, et cetera. And you fast forward to today and we literally don't speak about that stuff anymore. It's just, it's, it's kind of not the important stuff anymore. The bricks and mortar are the easy bit. As I said, it's, it's all about the overall dynamics of, of people with disability, supporting people with disability to achieve outcomes, et cetera. It's, it, it's quite an evolution. Thank you both. That's been fabulous. And I, I've forgotten about Seek and I'm rushing into the boss, boss's office quite excited about um, some potential there and a, a chance to make a difference in people's lives. So thank you both. Brent and Rebecca, it's been fabulous. Thank you. Thank you.